This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Happy belated holidays, Andrew. Happy 2013, Monica. It is a new year. Yes, it is. What are your New Year's resolutions? To keep better track of deadlines. (laughs) I got this. My New Year's resolution is to keep doing this podcast with you because it's fun. Aw, yours is so much more better. <laughs> yours is actually productive. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a serious answer. You gave an aw shucks one. It's all good. This is episode number 31 of Cinema Fix, our special holiday movie edition. If you're new to Cinema Fix, this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. We are here to satisfy your addiction to quality conversation about the movies. And this episode is a little bit different from our usual format. Usually, each episode only focuses on one film, and it's released in two parts, a spoiler-free and a spoiler-filled section. But this week, we're actually going to be talking about three movies, and we're not really going to divide it up into spoilers and and non-spoiler territory. We're just going to give our general thoughts and see where the conversation leads us. And if we feel the need to talk spoilers, we will try to warn you before we do so. Today, we're going to be talking about This is 40, Les Miserables, and I'm going to give some brief thoughts on Jack Reacher. Those are three pretty big and heavily marketed films that have been released over the holidays. Uh, We're also going to talk about Django Unchained at some point in the future. Not today, maybe on our next episode, because Monica, I'm sure you and I will have a lot of interesting things to say about that movie. Two sociologists, one racially charged movie. And episode. (laughs) Three, two, one, go! Go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's get started. Um, Monica, before we really dive into things, uh, I just want to give some quick thoughts on Jack Reacher. This is the new film starring Tom Cruise. It's based on a book by Lee Child. Uh, It's directed by Christopher McQuarrie. Basically, it's your typical secret agent-ish cop mystery thriller. Uh, It's about this guy named Jack Reacher, who's kind of a drifter. He used to be in the military, and he winds up involved in this investigation to try to figure out who is responsible for this random killing spree that happened uh, in the middle of of a city. And it's actually, it was really interesting seeing this movie in, in the wake of the Connecticut tragedy at Newtown and the mass shooting there because the opening scene of Jack Reacher is a guy with a sniper rifle just picking off random civilians (laughs) in the city. Poor timing. It's actually a pretty dark movie at times. The thing about Jack Reacher is, I, I don't know how much you've heard about it, Monica, it's actually pretty good for the first two acts. Okay. And then the 
ending, it just doesn't really do anything new. It's kind of your standard shootout and, you know, you got lots of guns firing and there's a final showdown with the bad guy and it's all your standard stuff, which was a real shame because actually what came before it was pretty interesting. And Werner Herzog is in this movie. No, I miss Werner. Shoot. Yes. Werner Herzog is actually one of the villains in the movie. What? Imagine Werner Herzog's voice. He should have just been narrating the movie. He needs, like, a side career with Morgan Freeman. And, like, whenever Freeman's too busy, Herzog steps up and gets it. (laughs) When I look into the eyes of Jack Reacher, I see no humanity. (laughs) I see only the wilderness. (laughs) Crocodiles. (laughs) (laughs) Crocodiles, yes. (laughs) Bino crocodiles. Okay. And one of the best parts of the movie is that... um, the very, very slight spoiler here. Uh, the name of Herzog's character is, I think it's Zek, which means prisoner or prison. Mm-hmm. And in what language? I can't even remember. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I missed that one. <laughs> At the end of the film, you find out his full name means prison human being. Okay. As in. I, as a human, I am a, I am a prisoner, or I am a prison. And I was just sitting there thinking, wow, that's so Herzog right there. Actually, they just typed it into Google Translate, and they just went to town. Oh, yeah? What language is it? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have to know what language I'm translating, I think. That's, yeah, probably. Because <laughs> otherwise, Google would be like, yeah, try again. <laughs> Yeah, th- there are some interesting things with his character, but they never really fully develop him. Hmm. You can tell this is a villain with a really interesting backstory and some interesting quirks, but they never really do much with it. And it was kind of frustrating. So I would say, if you're listening, see Jack Reacher if you want a mindless little action movie. If you're expecting anything new, go see something else. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. No love for Tom Cruise. He's okay. You know, I got the feeling he he's just he he was not the right choice for this movie. He's just too Tom Cruise. You know, whenever Tom Cruise is in a movie, you look at it and you go, "Oh, that's Tom Cruise." And he's played so many characters like this before. It just it felt really really formulaic. But uh let's move on to our two other films. Which would you like to talk about first, Les Mis or This Is 40? I'll go with This Is 40, and we'll just descend into darkness. How's that? Oh, wow. Okay. Let's do it. I'm not sure what you mean by that. It's it's actually both things. Okay. Actually, we could switch the titles on the two of them. This Is 40 and Les Mis and The Miserables and however you say This Is 40 in French. (laughs) <laughs> switch the titles and the, yeah actually now that i think about it there's just one has more characters than the other but basically everyone's right. just unhappy everyone's really sad which is i don't remember is this usually the case for the holidays because i'm pretty sure it's usually like oscar bait like inspirational hallmark bullshit you know king speech uh, the artist you know that sort of thing i feel like the hobbit was this year's feel-good holiday movie. Which isn't that feel-good either. Yeah, yeah. 
It's dry. <laughs> it's Django. It's twenty pages of adventure <laughs> in, a, in a book that's about a, a three twenty or three forty pages. I don't remember. There's Django. That's sort of feel good. That's what brings all the families together. Nothing like racism to bring people together around the holidays. Nothing like American history. Anyways, moving on to the what my friend adoringly called the white people's problem movie uh this is 40 yeah let's talk this is 40 uh why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this movie yes so it was directed by judd apatow and it's a spinoff of knocked up his i think movie from 2008 or so it follows the characters of uh paul rudd and leslie mann they're a couple with two children and they're basically the, the kids are a little bit more grown up than last time when we saw them in knocked up if you remember seth rogan was playing fetch with the youngest one actually like a dog and telling her to go play fetch but um so mm -hmm. basically the whole premise of the movie is just dealing with various aging problems and their insecurity about money and their marriage and that's about it there's no real overarching thing that they have to conquer it's kind of just one right after the other and that's their movie for two and a half hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's a clip you want to get a massage or do something fun? It's a bit... 40's huge! I'm turning 38. Okay, 38. We will move on. Isn't it weird that our birthday is the same week and then we're gonna have a party and it's just for me? No, I don't think it's weird at all. Because you're turning 40 and I'm turning 38. Come on, do you really want to be one of those ladies who's just so insecure about their age and they lie and then they gotta forget, then they gotta remember and it gets all... You don't get it. See, you don't understand how it works. I don't want to shop at old lady stores. I don't want to go to J. Jill and Chico's and Ann Taylor Loft. I'm not ready yet. I need two more years. That is so insane, it kind of makes sense. What'd you get me for my birthday? Wait a minute, I thought you said that we shouldn't get each other gifts this year. What do you mean? You're supposed to get me a surprise gift. This is a big birthday. I'm turning 40. Okay, Monica, before we really dive into This is 40, I, I gotta ask you, are you a Judd Apatow fan? Did you like 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People? You know what? As people like to charge him a lot with misogyny and... Those kind of words that I tend to not like in a director, but I actually do kind of appreciate the humor. It's Yes, it's very sophomoric or so, but I dig it. I did like Knocked Up, actually, a lot. But maybe it's because I also, too, hate Katherine Heigl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually like, I would say, probably all of his yeah. movies. He does a really good job of balancing juvenile sophomoric humor with actual adult problems and characters that are a bit heavier and a bit more dramatic. I even liked Funny People overall, and I know a lot of people hated that movie, yeah. but I thought I thought that there were some really interesting things in that film, and yeah, it ran a bit long, and it was a bit too ambitious. But That's his curse. It's just everything has to be over two hours. Well, not not... 40-year-old virgin. Really? Okay, think. so but that was like his big first one, correct? Correct me if I'm yes. wrong. Yes. Okay, so maybe he was playing it safe, but... It seems like after that, he just keeps just getting like longer and longer. longer. I mean, it's literally... I'm much, I mean, okay, so everything more or less had a big overarching problem. 40-year-old virgin, he couldn't get laid and knocked up. 
It was a baby. And funny people, it was cancer, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. And so here we are in This is 40, and... There, there's no plot. There's no super problem to deal with. There's a lot of little problems. So you got the money, right. you have the girls that are growing up, and they hate each other, and, you know, just here and there and everywhere. But there's not a cohesive, like, they got to band together and deal with this. They eventually just get together because they have to get together. Yeah, I think This is 40 is actually a pretty good title because it's not really about one thing in particular it's just about middle-aged it's about being a financially successful middle-aged white couple in america and the problems that (laughs) that 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 they face and i hate when that biking stuff happens (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I bike, so that's why I was like, relatable moment, but I so don't wear that spandex. I'm biking on my way to work. <laughs> a lot of people have criticized the film and said that it's just a movie about rich white people problems, which is kind of true. But, I mean, I mean, yes, Pete and Debbie are a fairly wealthy couple. They bike a lot. Paul Rudd can afford to eat a lot of cupcakes. They've got two kids that seem to be doing in, they seem to be in pretty good schools. Yeah, can I have an iPad too? Yeah. I'm 22 years old. I'm well overdue. Yeah. She's watching entire seasons of Lost. I think it's my turn. Yes. So it's true that this is a middle upper class white family. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that negates the film or what the film is yeah. trying to be about. I'm not sure that's a real criticism of it because newsflash middle-aged white people exist and they live lives and their lives might be something like this so that's that's, not true that's a valuable material for comedy (laughs) yeah i was gonna say it's almost like the lena dunham argument sure so like yeah so she has a right to create the art that she wants and what speaks to her but at the same time that sort of where her stories go and where her characters come from may not be easily accessible or relatable. <laughs> right. I don't I my problem with this is 40 is not that it's about financially successful white people. My problem with this is 40 is that as we mentioned there isn't much of a plot. It's just kind of like a series of yeah, situations and vignettes and it does meander a little bit and because it's sort of juggling all these different storylines with no real thread connecting them, it just it feels kind of aimless at times. Yeah. Which yeah. maybe that was Apatow's intention. Maybe he's trying to reflect the aimlessness that his characters feel yeah. in their lives, but it didn't make for a very enjoyable viewing experience. I mean, sure, some of the stuff is funny... But after a while, it's just kind of like, where are you going with this? Yeah. I, there are, like, when people, when certain fights would come up, I'm like, there are worse things. <laughs> yeah. We could we could really just calm down about this right now. Let me have a heart-to-heart. But can I just add that Albert Brooks is amazing, and I have so far have loved him in everything that I've seen. And he makes a great old father. <laughs> yes, Albert Brooks plays. Grumpy father. Fine, that's fine. I'll just kill one of the kids. No problem. <laughs> yeah, he he plays um, Pete's father, and that was a really interesting element of the film to me. Mm-hmm. Because he's Pete's father, but he's gotten remarried to a 
younger woman. And so he has kids now that are toddlers. Yeah. And here Pete is turning 40. So I felt like Apatow, in all his films, Apatow seems to be exploring this idea of relationships and family and what makes relationships work, what what constitutes a real family. And he seems to be really interested in, at least in This is 40, in broken families and children of divorced parents and how that can just affect their lives and their way of looking at love and relationships. Yeah, I did think that was a pretty interesting choice that both characters came from sort of disappointed families or so, Mm -hmm. or like how they view the, you know, um, Leslie Mann's character, her father was estranged basically and has this completely different family. And now, I mean, Albert Brooks's character, Pete's father, Paul Rudd's character's father, he is a bit more on the scene. It looks like they kept in touch more, but still he's kind of like, seriously, you had three kids now (laughs) and you have grandkids. (laughs) That are now older than those kids. Yeah. At one point, uh, Albert Brooks tells Pete's daughter, like, go play with your little uncles. <laughs> you know, it's just, just. Yeah. So, yeah, it is an awkward situation. And I was sitting there and I was trying to think, okay, maybe what Judd Apatow has done is he's created a mainstream art film in a sense. He's created this movie that doesn't really have no, much of a plot. I hate Mumblecore. <laughs> well, it's not it's it's not Mumblecore. It's not Mumblecore. There is a script, there is a budget. It is People good on the whole. Yell. It, it, at times. At times. At times. There are very funny Jewish comedians. It, it seems like the movie doesn't have much of a plot and it's it has all these ideas that it wants to touch on that it doesn't necessarily want to be upfront about. It just wants to let these ideas related to relationships and broken homes hang in the in the background. And I'm saying to myself, maybe that's what Judd Apatow is trying to do here. Is he's he, he wants to create this movie that's more about atmosphere and the feeling of disappointment and aimlessness that it can exist between people and when they reach. 40. And if that was his goal, I think he succeeded. That doesn't change the fact that at times it's not a very fun movie to watch. Yeah. It's not it's not a feel-good movie in the theaters. No. <laughs> no. I hear Cirque du Soleil is on screen, too. <laughs> but, I mean, the movie ended and I was kind of like, okay, I'm not sure these people changed in a meaningful way. I'm not sure if their lives are better. I finished watching it and I was like, oh, Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, are, are are the people at the end of the movie that much different from the people at the beginning of the movie? And maybe a little bit, but not... Maybe a little bit. Not really. Maybe the third child will calm them down. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, it's also... I guess it's kind of a weird dynamic, too, because you can see some of these problems and potentially happening in Judd's life, where this is like... Yeah, it, it feels like a very personal film. It, How are you okay with Paul playing you in this? <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like Judd Apatow going, this is my life, I need to get some of this out there on the screen. So you can yeah. you can sense that he's trying to wrestle with these these personal things, but at the same time, 
he's going to throw in some really random comedic moments, like the Melissa McCarthy character, for example, who's going to come along and... She's part of his real life now. Like, she's... She's there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. he comes over on weekends or so. <laughs> just to cuss him out. <laughs> so she shows up as this really goofy over the top character and that She's a parent, a fellow parent at the yes. kids' school. So she yells and she curses and you know how usually there's an outtake reel at the end of some of these comedies. The outtake reel of this is forty is just one take of Melissa McCarthy improvising during a scene yep. and it's pretty funny and I, it is. I so i feel like that is comedically where judd apatow is at his best but at the same time he wants to explore these more serious issues and he wants to be i guess you could call him a, a much more serious artist and he wants to be taken seriously and those two sensibilities don't always mesh together and I think he's still trying to figure out how to accomplish both of those, which is interesting because I think he actually did accomplish that a lot of the time in some of his earlier work. Oh, I see. He wants to go the Mel Brooks route where he, you know, does movies like The Elephant Man later on. Oh, life. sure. Sure. Yeah. Wait, Mel Brooks did The Elephant Man? He produced it. He produced it. Okay. That's right. I was like, he didn't do that movie. He, it was released <laughs> by Brooks Films. You're right. You're right. So yeah, I, I feel like Jed Apatow is still trying to find that right balance. I don't know. Any any overall thoughts in, on this is 40? Should people see it? I mean, I found it amusing also as the eldest daughter uh, with a younger sister and, you know, and a mom and a dad. It was kind of like, oh, certain moments it was like, yeah, it got there. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I guess every experience kind of differs. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, this is 40, but this isn't 40 for everybody. Right. I mean, there's a lot of characters that are in different stages of life. Really, the only other contemporaries that we see of theirs, they're close to, are like their best friends or mm -hmm. so that we find out about their lives. But other than that, like, we're not really, we don't meet anybody else who's going through 40s. It's very isolated, so right. I think it's an interesting thing to watch. But it's not like it's. I'm not. I'm not telling everyone to go. Go see it. You have to see it. Like this really captures this. Like okay, for example, Amour, which is a French film. I just saw that film. Yeah. You just saw it. Okay, good. It's a dealing about aging and the yeah, you know how we all sort of deteriorate and stuff like that. Like I think that one was much more universal. Oh sure. Than anything. This is 40, really touched upon. Yeah, perfect example. There's a running gag in the movie about Lost. Yes. Which is funny the first time. And then after that, it was kind of like, why are you devoting so much of your movie to Lost? J.J. Abrams is his boy. Isn't this going to feel dated in a few years? I would say This is 40 is maybe a rental. You know, yeah. there there are some funny moments there are, it's, it, it's great as a curiosity. I'm yeah. not saying, like, everybody needs to go see it. Yeah. I'd say it's definitely my least favorite Judd Apatow film so far. Yeah, I didn't have as many laughs as, like, Knocked Up. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. It, it didn't have the laughs, and it didn't have that underlying heart that a lot of his other films have that kind of bring it all together. Some people were saying, like, if... If the two main characters sort of rub you the wrong way, they're very self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, if you, you know, if you see them like that, then, and there's not really redeeming quality. Well, the, I mean, I the guess. two characters in Knocked Up were kind of like that to a certain extent. Catherine Heigl was 
was uptight and, you know, Seth Rogen's character was just kind of the schlubby loser, but there, there was a heart generated. I, I felt like you, you sympathize with them because they wanted to do the right thing. The right thing. They wanted to be good. We're here. It almost feels like they're staying together. Like it's a chore. They're right. doing it for the kids, which is not exactly the kind of mindset you want to have for any kind of a marriage. Because there's no real launching point for a plot. It, it's hard to figure out what exactly their motivation is. And yeah. it, it it's hard to figure out why you should care. So I'd say that's the main problem with the film. It's it's not horrible, it's but it's yeah, it's it's just kind of meh. It's a hipster meh. Hipster? You're gonna say it's a hipster movie? Oh no, I'm just saying hipster meh oh, because okay. Lena Dunham shows up. I to say what what is this Moonrise Kingdom? I don't think so. No, hey, Moonrise was awesome. <laughs> I'm not gonna play. Don't knock Edward or Edward Norton in shorts or like a very sad Bruce Willis sharing a beer with a kid. It's totally legit. Moonrise Kingdom was a fine movie. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, I think that, that'll do it for our conversation on This Is 40. Let's wrap up this episode by talking about Les Miserables. Monica, what is this movie about? Les Mis. I keep hearing people talk about Les Mis. It's basically about a bunch of miserable people, but, uh. <laughs> okay. It's directed by Tom Hooper, who is not Toby Hooper, which uh, a lot of people are mixing that up. <laughs> no. One did the King's Speech, another one did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Easy to get confused. So basically, Les Mis is based on the book that you probably wish you hadn't read in high school by Victor Hugo, and it's a popular musical. On, well, it used to be on Broadway, but now it's just touring the country always and in repertory theaters and in high school musicals everywhere. Probably seen on Glee as well. The main star is Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean, and he is a recently freed criminal who decides to break parole and start a new life. However, Russell Crowe plays Javert, who's the inspector trying to hunt him down. Did you just say Javert? Javert. It's Javert. They're in France. Javert. This is French. Yo, I'm Latin Spanish, <laughs> not Latin French. <laughs> Continue. I don't even know how to how I would say that in Spanish. Javier. <laughs> so this inspector dude, he's trying to hunt him down. And then on total on this whole big personal melodrama, there's the French Revolution on its way. And uh, apparently Anne Hathaway plays a very soulful prostitute. Yes. Here's a clip. Now prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means. Yes, he's so free. Follow to the letter your itinerary. This badge of shame will show it till you die. It warns you're a dangerous man. Store a loaf of bread. My sister's child was close to death. We were starving. We'll starve again unless you learn the meaning of the law. Know the meaning of those 19 years. The slave. Because you tried to run. Yes, 24601. Oh, my name is Jean Valjean. And I'm Javert. Do not forget my name. 
Do not forget me. Two four six zero one. All right, Monica, Les Mis has been a pretty hyped-up film. Everyone knows a lot of the music. Susan Boyle popularized her version of I Dreamed a Dream a few years ago. There's been several film versions of Les Mis. What did you think of this one? I was not in love with it. Um, I dreamed of a better-looking dream. Oh, you dreamed of a better-looking dream. Please elaborate. So the thing that really killed me, apart from the length of the film, because you actually really do feel it, either by poor editing or whatever, what have you, is that uh, Tom Hooper, not Toby Hooper, was very insistent on having everybody sing live, which is really cool and um, artistically important or so. But then we have awkward moments where we're just staring into people in the camera for three to five minutes while they do their solo. And in defense, the Anne Hathaway solo blows everybody away. Like, that's very well done, I think. It's actually just a camera standing on to a little off to the left of her. But almost every other shot of a soloist or so requires the camera just to stand still. Like, we're watching a very early talkie movie, and it's just not allowed to move. We're just going to sit here and watch them sing. Really? That that was your problem with how the film looked? The, the camera work. Okay, I, I have some issues with the camera work, but that is actually not one of them. So, I, I, I like, again, I don't mind the singing life. That was actually very impressive. But then either they use the same camera angle for a lot of people, <laughs> almost everybody, and then uh, they like the same crane shot over and over again on Russell Crowe, who is also one of the reasons why I didn't particularly like this one. He is completely flat the entire time. So. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be that hard. Er, I I've been in. I've been backstage at enough musicals working to know that I would not let him do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. My favorite moment to point at. Tom Hooper's poor camera work or like just anybody who sat in editing, anyone who sat in post-production, whatever, someone should have seen this and said, dude, we need to go over this again. Um, it's when Jean Valjean, Hugh Jackman, is doing his first grand solo. Well, not first grand solo, like second solo where he's pacing up and down the church and he's going back and going forth and going back and going forth. And we're on a sort of like dolly going back and forth with him while he's, you know, yelling into the camera really strongly. And at one point, we're going backwards. He's charging at us. And the camera sort of starts to tilt left. Mm -hmm. And instead of, like, fixing it, cutting it or something, you know, having a completely new take where we get the camera screwed on right, somebody actually just sits there, fixes the camera while it's going on as we're watching it. I'm watch I watched this at a press uh, screening and I saw many critics that were just like, What? This is a million this is an eighty million dollar musical and you could not stop or I don't know I'm not even sure. It's a million dollar musical. It's major studio backing. Hundreds of people worked on this and people saw it in post production, editing, 
director, somebody should have caught this and said, this needs to be fixed. This needs to be reshot. This one little scene. But that was the best take. It's careless. It's careless. My friend was also arguing this with me on Facebook or so, and she was head over heels with the movie. And that's fine. A lot of people are. And really, the you know, people who have an emotional attachment to the music, there's no not telling them that it looks like trash. There's just no right. way to tell them that what you're looking at is actually really expensive garbage. But my thing is, we hold directors, cinematographers, camera operators to the standard. And if someone this high up in the hierarchy in terms of like studio distribution, this is not an independent production. This is not a student film. This is not a documentary filmmaker working out of the jungles of the Amazon. This is someone on a closed set who had the time, money, and resources to do a simple retake, mm -hmm. should there need have been. Well, and there was definitely need. I guess he wanted that in the movie. Here, here's the thing. I'm not going to defend... It took me out. It, that's my thing, is that you straight up reminded me that I'm looking at a movie. I'm not going to defend Tom Hooper's direction. I agree with you. A lot of the direction in the film is poor. As you mentioned, the camera tilts. He loves Dutch angles. Oh, those bizarre Dutch angles that made no reason. Yes, they just kind of pop up. It's like all of a sudden we're watching a film noir? <laughs> yes, all these random shots with a tilted camera. And then these colors are all desaturated. The movie is about 20 to 30 minutes too long. I agree with you. There are, there are a lot of directing decisions in this movie that don't work. I will defend his use of... Of close-ups. maybe Except when he can't shoot them. Yeah. Like I said, the Anne Hathaway solo? Yes. Gorgeous. Give, give Anne Hathaway deserves at least a nomination, if not an Oscar win, for her solo in the movie. And here's yeah. why I think the, here, here's why I think those close-ups are important. The, the decision to have the, all the actors sing live while they film instead of pre-recording all the music and then having them lip sync is that it is allowing the actors to improvise. It's allowing them to bring the music in and build that into their performance. Yeah. And so they aren't just singing. They're actually acting the songs as, as well. Like, like it should be in a musical theater. Yes. I, that's why I think those close-ups are so important. So you can really see the actor side of them come out and you can see the pain and you can see all the emotions on their face as, as, as they're singing. I think it really works most of the time. And honestly, that's why I think a lot of people are criticizing Russell Crowe. The, the, the thing about Russell Crowe, he, he's not terrible in the movie. I would much rather listen to Russell Crowe sing than Pierce Brosnan in, in Mamma Mia. And ah, so yes, we do have. That memory. Yes. And, and and during his solos, I think he's he's okay on a lot of his solos. But because he's not as much of an experienced musician as Hugh Jackman, when he has to sing alongside Hugh Jackman, there's a noticeable difference. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he, he does pale. There's a in difference comparison. when there's like whenever he holds out that note and it starts to uh, yeah. falter a little bit. Yes. And you're like, oh, and the other thing is because Russell Crowe isn't quite as much of an experienced musician and singer, I feel like he's not quite able to do the acting and singing at thing the at time. the same time. 
with with him it's kind of one or the other it's like he's so focused on trying to sing he can't really quite deliver on the acting side you know and vice versa yeah. at times so i i don't think russell crowe is terrible i think he's getting a lot of hate he doesn't deserve i think he's fine he just i will agree he is the weak link when compared to everyone else could we get to some sort of a compromise, though? So, yes, I, I like the live singing because it also uh, fished out who was an actual singer and who wasn't. Right. So I can appreciate talent and when it's due or so, but there is no reason for the camera to stand still for that long without... You can still have them sing. I think you can still give them that ability but without like even like a live event you have like a camera one and camera two and you can cut between the two of them if you must like just some sort of a movement because it just it felt like i was staring Mm -hmm. and it just at certain points it just became boring i don't don't care what your drama is anymore get over it (laughs) move on (laughs) i gotta be honest i didn't notice a lot of the long static shots most of the time the only time i really noticed it was in Anne Hathaway's solo when it blew me away. Well, it blew you away, so it was awesome. And then the other time I noticed it is when he kind of tries to do a similar thing with Eddie Redmayne, who plays Marius, where at one point he has a solo and he's just sort of sitting in this room and he, he, he almost sets it up to be like a parallel to the Fantine Anne Hathaway solo. Where mm-hmm. he's sort of sitting on the floor, looking just to the right of the camera, or just just off to the side of the camera, and doing this solo. And the song starts, and the camera just sits there for a long time, I'd say probably a minute. And I was yeah. thinking, oh, cool, we're getting another long solo done in one take. I'm okay with that. And then suddenly it cuts <laughs> to a shot that is, it's like another medium shot that's just at a slightly different angle. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, that's the most pointless cut I think I've ever seen. It it was what? like, it's so similar to a shot, to, to the shot that preceded it. There's actually one cut that actually got audible laughter. Um, it was when, uh, is her name Epony? Oh, Eponine. Uh, yes. Eponine. Samantha, yes. Samantha Barks. Yes, it's the scene where she's, you know, pining for um, Marius. Right. And she's in the rain, standing, and it does this far cut, and it puts her in the top right-hand corner. (laughs) And it opens up there, and the top of her head is cut off. (laughs) Again, we could put her back in the rain, we'll throw the mud back on, let's do this one more time. Yeah, there are certain directing and editing decisions in this film that kind of boggle my mind and I think really undermine a, a lot of the really emotional moments. And, and speaking hey, of a really good director will like almost never gets felt because you're so much in the story right? and you're so like you're buying this hook, line and sinker. Yeah. I think a lot of the, the same techniques may have worked in the King's speech, but for whatever reason, maybe it's because it, it's, it's a musical and he's trying to incorporate the songs and and the performances together, for whatever reason, they just didn't work this time around. We don't need to send the camera up for every high note. Yeah. We really don't. But speaking of Samantha Barks as Eponine, I thought she was really great. I believe she has played the character before, either on Broadway or some some other production. 
of it. I thought she was fine. Random observation. I saw a DVD about a year ago of a big performance of Les Mis, like the one, like the 25th anniversary performance of Les Mis or something. Yeah, yeah. And in that performance and in this movie, I came away thinking, you know what? Eponine really is much more attractive than Cosette. Marius really needs to wake up and realize what's right in front of his face. You know, I think I say, what was it? I had I had a lot of fun reading some of the essays about it because, like, the ultimate friend zone girl. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the lot of all of us brunettes. Is this like a common theme throughout performances of Les Mis, where the Eponine character is going to seem a bit more polished, a bit more? Her features are always a little bit more symmetrical, and Cosette seems like just kind of your girl next door. Average look. I don't know. I've never seen the casting notes for Lameness. <laughs> I mean, Amanda Seyfried's attractive, but... I clearly am only cut out to play the witch and Wicked. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just me and my personal preferences. But Maybe. <laughs> I don't Maybe know. Maybe you, you have a thing for the friend zone. Yeah, I always want the you person I can't You just feel so bad have. for her. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, no, get that blonde chick. I'm totally with you, Eponine. I've been I there. I got you. <laughs> been there. I feel you, girl. <laughs> okay, well, let, let me ask you before we wrap up. Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bonham Carter. So it wasn't Sweeney Todd? It was not Sweeney Todd. Sasha Damn Baron it. Cohen is in this movie. Yeah. Singing. Playing Sasha Baron Cohen. I thought he was great. I thought Helena Bonham Carter was great. They're sort of the more over-the-top comic relief characters and... Yes. Tonally, they do feel a bit out of place with everything else. Because they're not, they're, wait, they're miserable, but they're funny. They're fun miserable. Yes. They're fun miserable? Yes. Funerable. Funerables? <laughs> the funerables. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I enjoyed them. I thought they were fine. I thought they were No, great. I, I like them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that was also kind of fun to see that pairing again. Yes. Because, yeah, like I said, Sweeney Todd, they were both there, and they were both singing. We were just missing Johnny Depp. If Sasha Baron Cohen decided one day, you know what, I really don't want to do these character comedies like Borat and, and Bruno anymore, I just want to do musicals, I think I'd be okay with that. I think so, too. I think he's got it in him. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty good. Okay, overall thoughts on Les Mis. Wow. Don't go. Unless don't go. Unless wow. So I say it's an abomination. I say it's an abomination to filmmaking. Whoa. It's not even story is fine. Actors are great. Like check out when that clip of Anne Hathaway goes up on YouTube. Respect that. But one of my friends actually wrote that it's it's a how to on how not to sh- how not to shoot a movie. Wow. And I and I very much agreed with him. So you really did not like the film. It was ugly. I've seen Lifetime movies that have better production value. <laughs> it has at least they at least care where their camera placement is. They at least pay attention to get the person in the frame. Simple things. There's a, I'm I'm not being too picky. I think I think I'm just asking to have it shot well. Tom Hooper, if you're listening, that's Monica at FilmGeekRadio.com. <laughs> Hate mails, please. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go as far as you. I, I actually did like the film a lot overall. I agree with you. There are definitely some technical problems. There are definitely some directing and editing decisions that should not have been made. 
and that do undermine certain scenes in the in the movie. It it is too long. But this the thing about Les Mis is the source material is so strong that I think it's hard to totally screw it up. Uh the music is great. The source material, the story is really awesome. It's all about you know, redemption. You know, you say and that, and I just finished watching the other Snow White movie, Snow White and the Huntsman, and, you know, that's a classic movie. They Disney made a great movie mm-hmm. out of that before, and then yet here we had two instances where directors just completely just went to town all over the place with it, Okay, and I wasn't particularly... Well, well, the thing with Les Mis is you know the music's going to be good. It's based on the novel, which is all about redemption and whether or not people can change or whether or not people just always stay the same. There's some good ideas running through it. It's about war versus peace and fighting for your beliefs. And And yo, do police suck. (laughs) And and yes, and F the police. Yes, you're right. Yes. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there just because it's Les Mis and there's strong stuff there already. I think the actors do a fantastic job. As I already mentioned, Anne Hathaway deserves awards consideration. So despite some of the technical flaws, overall, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Les Mis and I would highly recommend that people go see it if they like musicals. You just said that, well, not just, but you said way back at the beginning of uh, us talking about Les Mis, that there are other film versions of Les Mis. Yes, there are. The one I mainly remember is I remember seeing one in the 90s starring Liam Neeson and Jeffrey Rush. That's not a musical, if I recall correctly, but uh, Liam Neeson Liam Neeson's Jean Valjean, Jeffrey Rush's Javert, and Uma Thurman as Fantine, and I want to say Claire Danes as Cosette. Okay. And from what I remember, that's actually a pretty good film and a pretty good adaptation, but it is not the musical. The musical. I feel like the Broadway production has been recorded. Like, you can buy the DVD when you when it comes to town or so. Yes. It's probably played PBS more times than we know. Right. But so. in terms of this version, I thought it was fine. I think if you like good music, if you like good performances, if you like the source material, go check it out. If you want to see it shot as a reality TV show, <laughs> go check it out. It feels like the Jersey Shore! Ah! Let me ask you this, Monica. Would you prefer people see those ugly shots on the big screen or in the comfort of their own home on their TV. Comfort of their own home. Really? Yes. Because maybe they won't notice it as much. Okay. <laughs> That's the hopeful. <laughs> maybe they won't realize that her head is cut off and they just think that it's a problem with the TV. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say maybe watching it on a small screen would make it even worse, but they, I don't, who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe it's still loading, and that's why the camera is frozen on one place. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for our discussion of Les Mis and this special holiday episode of Cinema Fix. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed the show. We'd love to get your feedback. Let us know what you thought of This Is 40, Jack Reacher, and Les Miserables. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. 
You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Dispatches from St. Marina and The Thin Place. And uh, don't forget to tune in to our next episode when I'm pretty sure, Monica, you and I will be heavily debating Django Unchained. Bring your textbooks. Is Quentin Tarantino a racist or are people just jumping to conclusions? You'll have to tune in to find out. Dun, dun, dun. All right, Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online at the Twitters at mcastingmovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find a collection of my reviews reposted every week at the Bofka website. That's B-O-F-C-A dot com. And that's the nice short version of where I'm at on the internet. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. Oh, also, I should mention I am on the executive committee of the North Carolina Film Critics Association at ncfilmcritics.org, and we will be releasing our end-of-year awards uh, contenders for, for – we'll be voting on – you know, the best films of the year and all that. The results of that should be posted within the next few weeks. So I'll mention it again once the results are posted, but be on the lookout for that. I think that'll wrap it up for episode 31 of Cinema Fix. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!